0: Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income credit currency and commodities strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC Research
1: Team. Welcome to the FIC Focus Podcast, the Macro Matters Edition. My name is Ira Jersey. I'm the chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg LP. With me today, we're going to the emerging markets with Damien Sassauer, our chief EM strategist, and then we'll bring in Angelo Manolatos, and he and I will have a talk about North American rates. The Canadian central bank has just raised their interest rate for the first time. The Fed is likely to follow, but what's to come after these initial rate hikes? Damien? All the focus and attention right now is the goings on in Eastern Europe and, and in particular, the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine and uh, and then the global reaction to that. Um, c- can you talk a little bit about the political fallout and you know, what you think it might mean for the likes of China and India and a couple of other countries abstaining uh, from the resolution against the Russian invasion in the uh, in the uh, United Nations?
2: Sure Ira and thanks for having me. I think you know the UN resolution it's really kind of you know you really have to kind of take a step back and you got to look at 2014 and you have to look at you know the voting for the um, annexation of Crimea, you know, and the UN resolution therein, and basically what you see is some very, very interesting changes. I mean, so for example, um, back then you had a number of countries, um, I would call them Russian vassals, but you know, the, you know, countries that were sympathetic to Russia that voted against it, and those are countries like Cuba, Armenia, Zimbabwe, Sudan, Nicaragua all of which voted no in 2014, but this time around they all abstained. So it's quite interesting to me to see that as a step in the right direction. But really, you know, the big the big countries such as China, India and South Africa, all abstaining uh, and to, to and equally the UAE and Saudi Arabia. I mean, um, but but for very, very different reasons, you know, Ira. So let's just take a step back if we look at India, for example, I mean, most of India's heavy, uh, heavy artillery, most of their I mean, half of their tanks, most of their air force, they're all Russian. And so, you know, India is fighting a proxy battle with China, as we know, in the Himalayas. And, you know, the, they need uh, they need access to Russian arms. And so, you know, that is something and that is probably the driving force behind their reasoning. In the case of, for example, South Africa, you know, there is very strong ties between the ruling ANC and Moscow. And, you know, you know, even though the the Democratic alliance in South Africa is, is strongly opposed uh, and wished that the country had voted yes, South Africa chose to abstain. And this was their time, quite frankly, era on the political, you know, kind of theater to 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 make to stand in solidarity with Ukraine. So it, it's a real shame on that front. And then obviously you can't ignore what's going on in, in, in the Middle East. I mean, look, the UAE, I mean, they may be announced to the uh, to, to the gray list. I mean, that just came out today, which, you know, is basically the list saying by the FATF, which says that they are. Manipulating their currency, but this is really just because, I mean, the UAE is home to such an immense amount of Russian oligarch wealth and the concerns therein of, you know, basically clamping down on Russia might be a bit too great at this point. And and look, I understand, you know, the Middle East not wanting to take a side here, but nevertheless – you know that's where we are obviously china's the elephant in the room though if china wanted to put an end to this tomorrow they could um quite frankly i mean if so you look at so New- how
1: how would so how would they do that like like what would be if china said okay we want to be the heroes now we want to get you know become more relevant on you know the global diplomatic stage how would they actually do that what would be the the mechanism that they you know convince russia to you know stop hostilities and say okay look we're just going to um you know hold in place or whatever
2: Well, by not purchasing oil and and quite frankly, anything that Russia is producing, right? I mean, Russia is doing this with the full knowledge that, you know, when and if they can still support their economy by selling stuff through to China. And, you know, China has given them, I imagine, you know, the reason to believe that. And so, you know, if if China were due to the aggressiveness of the attack on Ukraine, sort of turn the other cheek, and we are seeing evidence that they might be doing that. But with the national, with the Congress coming up, Just this week, I mean tomorrow, quite frankly, Ira, um, you know it's it's going to be it's 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 a fool's errand, it's a pipe dream, really. And so China is going to sit back and let the market come to them. And right now, if you look at the move in yuan ruble, I mean it is, I mean the ruble has declined fifty five percent in yuan terms this year. That's more than the move in dollar ruble. Which, by the way, you can't even look at the number on the screen, erase it from your screen, Ira, because it means nothing. (laughs) You know, you can't trade in it. So you know, I think I think what's interesting here is you know the shoot the Xi Putin meeting. for the Olympics, um, really, if anything, in the eyes of many people I talk to, it almost makes China seem complacent in what's gone on here in Ukraine, which is, you know, obviously, uh, you know, very disheartening. So, yeah, I think. I think that's but, really my take on that.
1: But in fairness, China did abstain uh, in the in the United Nations, right? They didn't vote no, which they they could have been. So they're obviously playing uh, a diplomatic game at some level, and and so so what does that and, mean? And they
2: and, and and they changed the way they they spoke about it. They're no longer agreeing to calling it some sort of a special military operation, right? They're calling it effectively a war, um, which you know again, this, these are small little things and steps in the right direction, and they've opened up you know, uh, communications domestically within China to allow, you know, the populace to kind of really get a better feel for what is happening there because a lot of it was being censored. So look, again, we're, 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 you know, we're in early days here, but, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's unlikely to happen
1: and difficult to tell. So from, from a markets perspective, you know, let, let's talk a little bit about what the sanctions might mean for, um, uh, for Russia, and and also, you know, note that you know there was a story out on the Bloomberg terminal this morning about um, about the fact that that Europeans have still been purchasing uh, Russian. Uh, natural gas and other energy commodities, at least in, in the very recent past. So, you know, t- talk a little bit about the sanctions, how they might work and what effect they might have on various markets. You know, obviously, we see, you know, oil prices now at $112 a barrel in the uh, front contract. You know, that's that's, you know, we're now approaching a lot of people are talking about $140 or $150 a barrel mm-hmm. oil back to 2008 kind of levels, um, you, know, you know, how how serious can can the financial ramifications be of the sanctions on, on Russia?
2: OK, so the financial ramifications, I mean, we, we have a much clearer picture of that, you know, today because <laughs> Russia's formally banned coupon payments on all whole foreign holders of local denominated government debt, OFZs, right? That's about 30 billion. So basically, and, and by the way, the interesting thing on that is um, not only are they suspending payments, they are... Uh, they said that non-residents would still be subject to taxes on non-received coupons, which is quite unbelievable. Um, In addition, what we have, you know, coming up next week, early uh, next week is um, some of the largest uh, oil producing quasi-sovereigns in Russia, Gazprom and Rosneft. Um, They have two billion and one point three billion dollars of principal due. And the money is apparently there. But the question is, will they pay? I mean, in the case of Rosneft, Igor Sechin, you know, his super yacht was just confiscated in France. Right. Um, You know, um, and and and, you know, not like that means anything, Ira. But, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, what's the blowback going to be on those companies if they are paying dollars away from Russia when the country so desperately needs it, right? I mean, these sanctions are going to drive the Russian economy into a very deep recession. There's no question about that. Um, But, you know, in terms of, you know, what else in terms of, you know, what's the financial ramifications, you know, I I, I think the sanctions are really going to, and you could see it today and you could see it this week, they're really having an impact on European banks. And by, you know, f- kind of related to that euro dollar, I mean, euro dollar is kind of getting hit here and European banks, you know, have a lot of exposure to Russian banks, you know, credito comes to mind Softgen, gen uh, reps, uh, the, the big Austrian bank. I think it's called ref season. Um, I can't pronounce it. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, the, you know, and I think a lot of that has got to filter its way through. And I think we see a little bit of that you tell me and, you know, Uh, You know, three month cross currency basis swaps in euro dollar and dollar yen. You know, they've tightened quite considerably over the last week. And, you know, whether or not this is the beginning of something bigger, I don't really think so. We're not seeing real evidence of that, Um, you know, but but, you know, it's anyone's guess as to where this winds up. And uh, when the plumbing sort of gets clogged in one area, you know, it kind of reveals things in other areas, if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah. So I've been looking at, uh, yeah, obviously there's been a lot of talk because library OAS has widened, um, you know, I, I'm not going to say significantly, right. Cause we're not at a hundred basis points or anything like that <laughs> right. in library OAS, but we, we have widened from basically zero, right. We're around five basis points out to about 30 basis points, which, which is a non-trivial move for sure. Um, and a lot of people are thinking that, you know, maybe this is a dollar funding squeeze in, in European hours. And for, Certainly there's some, you know, like you said, like the plumbing is maybe a little bit clogged because we're trying to get used to the idea that we don't have the normal trade flows that we used to have. Right. But there's still plenty of dollar liquidity available. Um, There's there's uh, central bank liquidity swaps that didn't exist um, you know t- t- 10 12 years ago when the financial crisis occurred so so in in a worst case scenario right it makes sense that that maybe uh, dollar funding is going to go out to around 40 basis points you know you know back of the envelope calculation that's kind of where um, w- where it becomes a little bit more uh, reasonable for uh, banks to go to their own central bank and use some of these facilities from the Federal Reserve because it does cost something to do that it's not free right the Federal Reserve doesn't give European banks free free money it gives it money that um at a, uh, at, a, at a at a cost and that cost is you know round, again round numbers uh, you know around 40 basis points uh in, in LIBOR OAS terms. So so not a big surprise that cross currency basis swaps have tightened a lot, not a big surprise that LIBOR OAS has widened, but it's not a liquidity squeeze like you would have to worry about a bank going bank you know not being able to fund itself at all tomorrow. Right. right? So so this is more of a credit story, I think. And if you look at credit default swaps, since the hostilities were about to start, you've seen the panel banks, the LIBOR panel bank spreads widened pretty significantly widened 30 40 basis points over the last couple of weeks um and and that started even before libor oas went wider and and th- there's a variety of reasons for that one is uh, you know central banks were poised to tighten and you know cent- certainly the the fed is probably going to tighten canada tightened earlier this week we'll talk about that in a minute that tends to d- during during times of tightening and yield curve flattening Bank profits tend to be lower, so right. you're going to have credit spread widening, just like you might have a change in valuation of the equities. Point, um, so, so I'm not, up. I'm not so worried about that from a from a liquidity standpoint. But what what I am concerned about is, you know, how long this lasts and what the contagion is, because because now the narrative I think for the global economy has shifted a little bit, where we were worried about an overheating economy, we were worried about uh, inflation running hot and and being pushed by demand. But now, you know, we have to worry that there's going to be contagion and real growth might actually slow very significantly. So talk to me about emerging markets, because that, that is the crux of this. Talk to me a little bit about the emerging market economic landscape and what that might mean for things like uh, like emerging market sovereign credit spreads.
2: Well, I mean, here, yeah, you, you hit the nail on and I mean, look, if you want to talk about um, credit default tops and the EM sovereign credit universe, I mean first of all russian 5 year cds of 1387 basis points i mean that's pricing in i mean pick a number 70 72% probability of default within the next 5 years right and by comparison ecuador a serial defaulter is only at 900 basis points right so 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 in terms of contagion from you know russia and into the broader em landscape specifically let's look at sovereign credit the sovereign credit markets off you know 10% year to date okay it's off to its worst start on record. Right. Um, and obviously, if you look at the three countries which um, which are most you know, closely connected, you know, bonds issued by Russia, Ukraine and uh, and Belarus, you know, they account for over the last week alone, IRA, 24 billion U.S. dollars of losses in market value. So that's not an insignificant amount of money. And I'm not even looking at the Gazprom, the Rosnefs, all the corporates, you know, the service stalls, you know, the North Nichols, you know, again, many of whom are getting increasing likely to be pushed into high yield alongside the sovereign, because this week, and this is all very interesting and all very fresh in everyone's minds, Russia has effectively been kicked out of the MSCI equity indices, the FTSE and Bloomberg bond indices, uh, the JP Morgan bond indices. Um, so, you know, what, you know, what does that mean? You know, if investors can't sell these securities because they're sanctioned, how can can they manage around that? Well, you know, it's the idea of a side pocket. You know, I can see a lot of these funds if they don't wind up to begin with, um, like the more Russia dedicated funds. I mean, I think there was an announcement just yesterday, JP Morgan's Semia dedicated equity fund has to wind down because of all this. Right. But, you know, w- you know, assuming that doesn't happen, you're going to see side pockets where, you know, for example, you know, um, you know, a separate fund is struck with a nav on the, de- uh, you know, that, 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 Investors of that day have 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 the right to own, but they're not going to be able to wind that down or sell those securities for some time. So it's just going to sit there on your portfolio since forever. Mm, But but life goes on, right? And these indices are going to basically kick all of the Russian you know assets out of their out of their benchmarks, and they're going to start anew, so to speak. So so I think that's in terms of contagion in terms of how do investors you know portfolios get impacted by what's happening here today. That's obviously the most direct in terms of the economic impact. Obviously, it's going to be Eastern. In Europe, which gets felt feels the most of the pain, and we're seeing that if you look at Polish Slotty, a Hungarian Forint, um, um uh, Czech krona, all of those are the worst performing currencies since this is. Uh, happened. What uh, if you if you want to focus on the CE4, the Romanian layout has actually been a relative safe haven of sorts, simply because it's a more managed peg to the euro. But now you have the euro falling out of bed, so it's anyone's guesses as, as to where we wind up. But but in in terms of major emerging market economies that are most exposed to 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 the war, those are them. The Baltics, obviously, to a lesser extent, only because they're not as investable as the others. But but those are the ones that are most exposed. In terms of where you might want to hide out if there is such a place in emerging markets, it would be those uh, economies that are high carry, resource rich, and most geographically distant from the action. And in my mind, it's the Andean region in Brazil, right? So it's, it's, it's probably Peru, Chile, Brazil, you know, those types of countries.
1: Yeah, I think we've covered just about everything that I wanted to cover. Damien, was there anything that we missed that you, that you want to um, uh, that that you want to discuss?
2: I mean, look, I think I'll leave it with this. You know, we we all know that you know the big number, 2.9 million barrels a day of oil at risk. What's that? 10% of global oil supply. So clearly, and I think if I mean you, you you've pointed this out repeatedly in the past 24 hours. If you just look at the move over the last month in in tips, and break-evens. I mean, what the market is now pricing for clearly is stagflation, right? I mean, the flattening of the curve and then, you know, break-evens doing what they're doing. So, and, and I think that makes sense given where we are. And I think, you know, a lot of asset markets have yet to really fully price the impact of that in. And you know what I'm thinking here? I'm talking U.S. equities among other things. And so I think, you know, there's there's going to be some volatile times ahead. You know, I think there's going to be a premium paid for growth at a point. But I think the the overriding story is still going to be the inflation one. And uh, and that's my view.
1: Great. Well, that was Damien Sassauer, our emerging markets strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Damien, uh, you have your own version of the FIC Focus podcast talking about emerging markets. And we look forward to listening in the near future.
2: Thank you for having me, Ira and uh, Angela. I can't wait to hear what's going on in Canada. Uh, you know,
1: take it away. So here we go. So now I'm going to bring in Angela Monolatos. We're not going to do our Fun Fed Facts segment today, but talk instead about what all of the geopolitical concerns and uh, some of the recent data might mean for rates markets, and certainly we have to start then with central banks. Uh, the first North American central bank has tightened monetary policy just this past week. Angelo, you know, not only did the Bank of Canada hike interest rates, but there was more color on what they're going to do with their assets, because like many uh, G10 central banks, they've been doing a lot of quantitative easing. Uh now we have some details on quantitative tightening. Talk a little bit about your thoughts on what they said and what it might mean for uh for the curve in Canada.
0: Hey, Aaron thanks for having me on so we've seen a really large planning move now and it's uh geopolitically driven um, I mean initially, it was rate hike cycle driven but now the The flattening move is, you know, persistently high inflation, but longer term, you know, growth is going to get hit by, um, you know, potentially hit by these geopolitical risks. Uh, As for the Bank of Canada, they raised rates and um, they gave us more color yesterday on what their bond runoff runoff is going to look like. So uh, for what we know now is no asset sales, but uh, a central bank that's going to completely cease secondary market purchases and try to uh, cease... uh, even primary market purchases or purchase a really, really small allotment um, at auction. Um, just trying to get that, those settlement balances or reserve balances, you know, uh, down to um, a, a, more, uh, a, a smaller level since uh, they're uh, supposed to be temporary in nature um, and own a smaller uh, portion of the bond market. So right now, if they own a little over 40% of the bond market, uh, by the end of fiscal year 2024, so that's March 2024, uh, they can really get down to below, 25, uh, below 25% of the market. So that's a very large um, reduction in that period of time, and uh, they can do that without asset sales, which is uh, beneficial to um, you know, market liquidity and, and market structure.
1: So, from a uh, so so, do you expect there to be additional flattening, or you know, what what's your expectation? Will, will there be any significant market reaction from uh, the the Bank of Canada announcing uh, runoff at some point in the near future?
0: So, I think runoff itself, uh, without asset sales, is pretty is pretty curve agnostic since it's just bonds that are maturing. Maturing bonds have no uh, have no interest rate risk. Uh, they're maturing. What really matters is. Will the will the Department of Finance continue uh, skewing issuance towards, you know, towards the longer end of the curve? And that could really, uh, you know, incrementally lead to some to some higher yields to uh, higher yields uh, due to, um, you know, due to this due to the Department of Finance need to you know, roll over all this debt to the private market, since I think Canada is no longer going to be buying and probably buying a, a very small share in the primary issuance market, which could add some upward pressure to yields. but the primary drivers of yields are going to be global growth of longer end yields I and mean, global global growth dynamics and uh you know inflation inflation expectations uh, and how they're going to how they're going to and how the Russia-Ukraine situation is really going to affect global growth and both domestic and um, confidence just south of the border in the United States as well.
1: Well, that was a nice segue, because I think maybe uh, it's worth mentioning, and, and we have to mention something about the Federal Reserve being the next uh, major central bank that's likely to increase interest rates. Um, so the market is no longer pricing a 100% chance of an interest rate increase. And, you know, n- not even a month ago, we were pricing for almost two hikes uh, at, you know, 50 basis points of hikes in the, uh, um, at the March meeting of the Federal Reserve. Now, as we, uh, as on March 4th at 30 in the morning we're pricing for around a 90 percent chance of of a hike I do think that the the Fed will increase interest rates 25 basis points in March but I, I do think it is significantly less certain about what the path thereafter is. Um, so we've been pretty consistent with our view that they wouldn't hike um, uh, more than five times this year uh, the market is now priced four or five hikes uh, over the course of the next uh, um, over the course of the next nine months or so. And then another uh, with another hike in January of uh, or or February 1st, 2023. um, I think that we're going to wind up in a situation where we may price uh, slightly slower hikes for for 2023 but a little bit more um so as the situation in europe you know quiets and it's obviously you just heard damien talk about um the, the fact that we don't know exactly how long it's going to take but but presumably it won't be it'll be a matter of months not a year or more um And as that quiets, I think that we do turn to an environment where we say, okay, real growth is slowing. Inflation still remains well above the Federal Reserve's target. So the Fed will, will continue to be somewhat hawkish. And then on top of that, um, I think that the slower the Fed goes, the more they'll be able to go over a longer period of time. Um, so right now, the market's basically pricing for the Fed to hike six or seven times and then stop. Um, I do think that there's the chance that they can hike, uh, you know, eight or nine times, and and maybe even ten at the uh, at the outside. Um, but but in order to do that, I, I think that they can't hike as aggressively as. Uh, some members of the Fed want to, you know, hiking every meeting this year, this year and, and, you know, hiking very what I would consider reasonably aggressive. So that's number one. And then number two, they are going to use. Um, if um, I, I think that we they're going to continue to um, talk about balance sheet runoff, and I think ultimately they would be well served to skip hiking in June. So if they hike in March and May, I think that they should skip the June uh, interest rate uh, hiking and instead announce balance sheet runoff at that time. Keep in mind, there's still plenty and tons of liquidity in the market. I mentioned before about LIBOR OAS uh, being wider, but there's still a lot of money and there's also different facilities that the Federal Reserve has that have not been used uh, in, in any significant fashion, like uh, uh, like the Fed's FEMA repo facility where, um, where european banks and and other uh g ten central banks can go to their local central bank and basically fund any of their treasury holdings through the federal reserve that that 's not being used at all right now so so there is a lot of liquidity out there, and they have to drain that liquidity to make monetary policy. And, and interest rate hikes even more effective because right now there's just tons of excess liquidity that just the financial economy just doesn't need. Um, so, so Angelo, you, you know, we, we talked about um, a lot of stuff in Canada. I mentioned my thoughts about the US. I do think that the yield curve ultimately will continue to flatten a little bit more. Um, I think we will probably have a significant growth slowdown later this year and into 2023, if not, if not an outright recession, but. As we as we start to unwind here, we're getting to the point where we only have another week of asset purchases. Um, You know, what's your you know, you've been tracking these asset purchases by the Fed as closer than just about everyone uh, on on Wall Street. Um, You know, what's. What, what you know? What what's your view on how the recent purchases have gone? Um, you know, what, one of the, you know things like offer cover ratios. What's been going on with with that? Because I think it it has uh, something to do with the idea that that dealers might not want to um, take on as much debt on their balance sheet or or own as many treasuries on their balance sheet as uh, as maybe they need to to um, to provide liquidity to the markets.
0: Yeah, so we've seen a we've seen a, a pretty large rise in offer to cover ratios. You know, so you could say, you know, well, the uh, you know amount uh, amount the Federal Reserve is willing to buy is much smaller because they're only buying twenty billion. But if you look at actual submissions, submissions to the Federal Reserve, are elevated. So you you, you are seeing dealers, um, you know, really, you know, you know, have have ele- really elevated submissions to the Fed, and this is coming at a time of, you know large, uh, market volatility. So, um, uh, if this volatility does continue, um, you could see, uh, you know, uh, you could see more, you know, e-liquidity, uh, issues, uh, as you and, uh, Sean Savage have been writing about, and you can see, um, you know, dealers, uh, willingness or unwillingness to, uh, intermediate, um, in the market. Uh, so yeah, that's definitely something to look out for. And we're definitely seeing a, a, you know, kind of re- an elevated level of submissions. And since the amount the Fed's buying is less, we're also seeing elevated level of, you know, cover ratios in these final operations during this time of higher market volatility
1: and it 'll take some time for dealers and and the market in general to find an equilibrium um, you know we We got used to over the last two years the fed Reserve being basically an outlet for any inventory that dealers might wind up taking on when people wanted to sell bonds so um so So, so we do have to adjust to this new environment, which means and during that adjustment period, we might get a little bit more volatility in markets on an intraday basis than than perhaps we we 've been used to because we and we also know that that quantitative easing is a volatility killer, right? We, we've seen that during all four bouts of, uh, of quantitative easing over the last uh, decade or so, that, um, that, that every time the, the Federal Reserve is in the market, volatility in most fixed income assets just is significantly reduced. And now that they're not in the market, you could expect volatility to remain somewhat higher, both on a realized and, and probably implied basis as well. With that, that's another episode of the FIC Focus Podcast, Macro Matters Edition. I've been Ira Jersey on behalf of Angela Monolatos and Damian Sassauer. We hope that you'll be well.